My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as, uh, as we get settled into this service, before you get too settled in, three to five-year-olds, I want to just go ahead and invite you to head on up to Hubtown Kids. You can meet Mr. Brett and your teachers over here to my right, uh, probably your left. Uh, parents, church members, folks here this morning, we are going to be having our children learn of this fact about God, that He is eternal. He is eternal eternal. It's so helpful when we're learning things to, to, to work in contrast. And so if, if God is eternal, what are we? Well, we are finite. If God is eternal, we are temporary. And so what a beautiful thing as we see our own frailty, as we see our own weakness, and we look to God and we see that he is altogether other. He is different. I was told in Bible college to never do what I'm about to do. Maybe some of you are nervous. Actually, I'm not going to do it. I was going to sing Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but I'm not going to sing that. I'm going to have you sing that with me. And so here we go. We can just say it together. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Pause. Some of you are way more excited than the others this morning and you're being a little more loud. I wish that everybody would sing loudly as we sing this and other songs, but so let's keep going. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed by, he looked up in the tree and he said, from there, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Jesus here in his final week, as he's now in Jerusalem, the final week of his earthly life, he's had, he's had a full week, right? But if you remember, before he came to Jerusalem, he passed through Jericho. Well, Mark doesn't record the story of Zacchaeus, but our friend Luke does. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, we he, see this unique story about Zacchaeus recorded there. And many of you, many of you, you know this story. Jesus sees Zacchaeus, this wee little man, hanging out in the tree, wanting to hear Jesus, wanting to see Jesus as he passes by. And as he's up there, Jesus calls out to him and says, hey, come on down, little man. I'm going to your house today. So Jesus did go to Zacchaeus' house that day. And because of that visit, our friend Zac was never the same. You see, he had accumulated his wealth. He had made his mark there in Jericho by working hard and by working hard at underhandedly taking from others in deceitful manner. But the Holy Spirit of God, listen, the Holy Spirit of God revealed to him Jesus and opened his eyes to Jesus, opened his ears to hear Jesus' message that day in a way that I can't do, Mother, Father, in a way that you can't do. The Spirit of God did that. Zacchaeus sensed the authority of Jesus, and he was softened by sweet conviction. And that day, Zacchaeus gave half of his total wealth, at least he committed to do so, to those that were in need, and he repaid everyone that he had defrauded times four. If he stole 10 bucks from you, paying back 40. And half 
of what was left, he gave to the poor. This morning, we are in Mark's gospel, chapter number 12. We're not in Luke, and we're not going to talk much more about Zacchaeus. But it's my hope that after looking at this passage, that each of us will consider what it is for us to give to God and to others what is their due. Particularly that we would learn from this passage what Jesus is teaching, that we would give to Caesar what is due. And ultimately, that would understand what does God require of us and what is due Caesar. And then finally, what is due to God? What do you owe God? Hopefully we'll come to a right conclusion of those questions by the end of our time this morning. And so let's read God's Word. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to, to read along. It will be on the screen, but I invite you to turn in your own Word. There's just something about holding your own copy of God's Word and reading it and marking it up and following along there with your hands. Mark chapter 12, we'll read verses 13 down to verse 17. This is what the Word of God says. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of God. Let's ask him to read it or to bless it in our ears. Father, we again quickly come to you now, recognizing that we are utterly helpless when it comes to seeing Jesus clearly. And so we ask that through your word and through the spirit of God, working through this inspired text, that we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would understand ourselves more deeply, and that ultimately we would render to you, collectively as a church, individually as human beings, that we would render to you what is due. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we walk through this text, we'll see a few uh, stages or different steps. I just want to highlight them to you. They're not action steps for us, but we're going to walk through and we're going to see a hypocritical trap. We're going to see a trap that was set by hypocrites for the intention of tripping Jesus up. We'll kind of unpack the text around there. We'll continue moving on and we'll see a conscious master. We'll see that Jesus is aware of their hypocritical trap. He's aware of it. Not only is he seeing it coming, not only does he understand the intentions of their heart, but he also understands he's conscious enough to sidestep it and to address exactly what needs to be addressed there. And finally, we're going to see this morning an amazing answer. 
I want to steal the thunder here, but you'll see these disingenuous guys coming to Jesus, pretending to be amazed, and yet finally, when they leave, they are sincerely floored, sincerely amazed. And so let's look first at this hypocritical trap. Look at verse 13. It says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. You might be asking this morning, who is the they referring to? Well, in context, if we read back to the first 12 verses of chapter 12, if we go back even farther into chapter 11, we'll see that they is referring to the Sanhedrin. They'd come to Jesus, they tried to trip him up, they'd asked him about his authority, they tried to shut him down, and they were unable to do so. And so this religious ruling body of elders there in Israel, they've run in, we've run into them the last two weeks, and they decide, hey, we're going to send one more. And th- by the way, this isn't the last, but they sent one more entourage to Jesus to try to trip him up. And this time they think their plan is pretty solid. And so they send a few of the Pharisees, and they send a few of the Herodians. You might be saying, who are the Pharisees? Well, they're a religious sect in Jesus' day. They are known for their intense piety. They're known for their strict adherence to the laws that many in their day had sidestepped and looked over. They truly believed that the Word of God, the the Old Testament mostly that we believe as Christians here today, that it was the inspired Word of God and that it was authoritative in their life. And so there was a lot of good things going for the Pharisees, and yet these guys still in their hearts hated Jesus. And they didn't understand Luke 24. That all of the Old Testament that they knew and loved was actually about Jesus. Which, by the way... Another shameless plug. That was a great point I grabbed this morning from the equipping hour. You should come. You should be there. But anyway, these guys are known for their intense piety. They're known for their strict adherence to the law. And and we've seen these guys several times before in the Gospel of Mark. Matter of fact, we saw them in Mark chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. If you have your Bible open there, it probably won't be on the screen, but you can just flip back to Mark chapter 3. This is what the Word of God says in verses 5 and 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. And what were they counseling about? What were they talking about? That they were trying to decide how they could destroy Jesus, it says there. In verse 6, they wanted to destroy him. They're count, taking counsel with the, the Pharisees along with the Herodians. And so you, we, we kind of have an understanding of who the Pharisees are. And we recognize, we see a little bit of ourselves in them, but we also, we also see a little bit of, of, of just sinful hatred towards Christ. But who are the Herodians? Well, again, we, we, we see them there in chapter 3, but they come up again. And so who are the Herodians? Well, the Romans had conquered and really occupied the land of Israel, and now they were ruling it. And so, of course, Caesar, he has this vast empire that spans most of the known world at this point in time, and he can't be bothered with this little tinderbox called Palestine. He can't be bothered with that, and so he's got other uh, fish to fry, so to speak. He's out there trying to conquer what's now Germany and other parts of the world, and so he's got some guy by the name of Herod set up there in Israel, and he is leading as a governor of sorts there in the area of Judea, particularly there in Jerusalem. And so the Herodians, they're a political party that thought it was best to go along with the Roman rule. And so the Pharisees, their M.O. is to say, hey, we don't like the Romans. We don't want them to be here. They're not supposed to be here. We wish they'd go home. We don't want anything to do with them. But then you have the Herodians over here that are saying, hey, you know what? 
They're literally, Rome has taken over all of the known world. What are we really going to do about this? Everywhere we look, it's like, like grasshoppers just overtaking a field. And, and uh, what, what are we going to do? We can't fight them all. And so the best thing to do would just be to go along with the, the flow here. To go along with Herod. And so they're referred to as simply the Herodians. They support Herod. And they saw that it was mutually beneficial for everybody involved. And so these guys are diametrically opposed, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And yet, while they can agree on nothing, it seems, they do find one thing that they agree on. And what is that one thing? Hatred for Jesus. Hatred for Jesus. They want Jesus dead. And so they find it in themselves, as evil tends to do, to come together for evil purposes and to lay a trap for Jesus. And so they preface their trap there in verse 14 with flattery. What do they say? They come to Jesus and they say, teacher. Why are they calling him teacher, right? Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. What are they saying here? Well, remember back in chapter 11, particularly verse 32, it says that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel, what did they do? They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people to their shame. And what are they saying to Jesus? They truly, I believe, recognize that Jesus is not afraid of the people. And so to flatter him, they bring this up. You're not afraid of the people. Jesus really is a man of integrity. He really is a man of honor. He really does speak the truth, and he's not swayed by the crowds. I love this phrase here. It says, not swayed by appearances. Well, in the Greek, I'm not a, by the way, I'm not a Greek master here, but not by any means. But from what I understand, that actually means you look not at the face of men. So you're not swayed by appearances. Really, in the Greek says, you, you look not at the faces of men. And basically what that is giving us is this idea that Jesus is not looking to the face of people around him as he makes his decisions. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I know that I can. Jesus is not looking around as if he wanted their approval. They may be flattering Jesus, but what they're saying about him is true. He didn't look towards the face of men. He looked toward the face of God. There's a Latin saying, I'm really showing off today, aren't I? I don't know any of these. I can just read. That's all I can do. There's a Latin saying, and it's Coram Deo. Many of you may have heard that. According to R.C. Sproul, it's the essence of Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And this is what Jesus was doing. He's living his entire life in the presence of God the Father, the authority of God, and to the glory of God. And so when he makes his decisions of what he'll say, where he'll go, where he'll spend his money, what he'll do with his time, he's not looking in the mirror. He doesn't look to the face of the crowds. He looks to God alone and he says, what would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? 
So often the temptation in our life is to live one's entire life in the presence of men under the authority of ourselves and to the glory of our own desires. Yet that's not what Jesus models for us, nor is it what God requires of us. That phrase, quorum Deo, is actually found in the Latin translation of the Bible, Psalm 56, verse 13. And there it says this in the English, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Perhaps a fitting illustration would be of a child accomplishing a a fantastic feat, like jumping on one foot, looking over to their mom and dad and calling, Hey, look at me! Look at me! Look at this thing that I'm doing! It's pretty amazing, right? The child wants you to see what it's doing. It wants you to see and approve and to celebrate. And that's what Jesus does, but not to those around him and not to his mother and father. But he does that and he calls to God and he says, is this pleasing to you? I recognize that my life is lived before your face. So this slight that they give to Jesus, this flattery that they're offering, it is true. The question I would ask you, is it true of you? Is it true of me? The Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Galatia. What does he say? Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For I, am I now seeking the approval of man? Am I, do you perceive that I'm operating as an apostle before the face of man, longing for his approval? Or do you think it's quorum Deo? Do you think I'm living before the face of God? He says, if I'm trying to please man, he said, I cannot be the servant of Christ. So he gives us a dichotomy. He gives us a a fork in the road. He presents that to us this morning. Church, there's only one option. There's only two choices. Living before the face of man, which for many of us with temptation is to live before the, the mirror, or to live before the face of God. At any rate, it's almost like these guys are pretending to wave a white flag. They come to Jesus and they're like, man, Jesus, you are, you're just, you're really good. You're something else. You're doing what we can't do. You don't even care about the people. You don't even care what you look. Sounds like a backhand, by the way. You don't even care what you look like, Jesus. You're just so bold, right? They butter him up. They wave the white flag. You're able to to just step into the fray here and do what we're not able to do, Jesus. And so because of that, we we need you to answer some difficult questions for us. Would you help us out? You've demonstrated your authority. Would you do it one more time? And they ask this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You can see in that question, the, the representation of the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's like, should the Herodians are like, hey, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What are you thinking? It's almost like, yes, the kid's like, do you want to go eat at the steakhouse or, 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 or McDonald's, right? But we don't ever ask like that. We're like, do you want to eat at the steakhouse or McDonald's, Right? That's what they're doing to Jesus. They're like, hey, do you want us to, do you want us to pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? What law are they referencing to when they say, is this even lawful to do? Well, Roman law posited that everyone had to pay taxes to Caesar. But then there were those who would say, through the law of God, twisting it to say, hey, we don't think that you should pay taxes to the Romans. 
And now every single Jew living in Jerusalem, living in uh, Israel at that particular time is asking this question. And really, on a, as a side note, this is a difficult question to answer. It really is a big concern for these God-fearing Jews of Jesus' day. They really needed wisdom. What are we to do? How do we make this decision? How do we navigate this? This isn't his land. It's the promised land. It belongs to the descendants of Abraham, to the descendants of Isaac and Jacob. And we don't even want him to be here. So why should God's people pay tribute to and tax to this man that thinks himself in the place of God Almighty? So they have a legitimate question here. They're asking it insincerely, but it's not an unreasonable question. This is the sort of question, really, that would keep Jewish leaders up at night. How do they navigate this? How do they bridge the gap between the two varying opinions? How, really, truly, if you take either one to its logical conclusion, either the people of God dissolve as a nation ultimately, or they are destroyed and decimated as they rebel against Caesar. And so they posit this question to Jesus. What do you think would happen to Jesus, by the way, if he told them that they should not pay taxes? What do you think would happen? Jesus says, maybe let's just pretend that he's like, hey, that's easy. I'm glad you asked that. I've got the answer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that, that tax that you had set aside, and I want you to just uh, give it to me, or I want you to go give it to something else, or just keep it for yourself, buy yourself something real nice. What do you think would happen to Jesus had he said that? Truly imagine with me. Would it have ended well for him? Of course, we know what his future holds. He knows what his future holds. But at this point in time, it's not ready to, to be sprung. It's not yet his time, as he, as he tells his mother, not that long before this time. It's not yet time. What would happen if he, if he said, hey, of course, pay the tax. Everybody pay the tax right now. What would happen then? Maybe it's not so obvious to you what would happen, but he definitely would have marginalized himself from his hearers, from his followers. They were looking to Jesus as the Messiah. There was some waffling and some confusion as to who Jesus really was and what the Messiah was really going to accomplish. And so as they welcomed Jesus in as the at the triumphal entry, as their Messiah, as their king, they're saying in their minds, now's the time where we're going to stop paying that stupid tax to a pagan idol worshiper. We're going to have a false god. We're going to give this to the one true God. God's going to dwell with his people once again under the authority and leadership of our new Messiah. So what would have happened if he had answered that way? Well, I can tell you this. Rome doesn't care about one person's opinion. They don't care about your opinion unless your opinion influences thousands to not pay that tax. And that would have been a problem. So Jesus was one such person. His opinion really would have made an impact on Caesar's pocketbook. And so that would have made him an enemy of the state. And vice versa, as we've already seen, that would have, if he had answered the other way, it would have made him an enemy of the people. But what if, what if he said he had to pay it? Again, would he be affirming Roman occupation? Would he be saying, yes, of course, this is a good thing that they're here? Well, in their mind, and really in my mind, before reading what Jesus answers, I'm thinking there's no good way to answer this question. 
They've forced him to choose between two positions. And it seems as though he's trapped. And so they have this hypocritical trap. But there's also a conscious master. Look at verse 15. I love this. And so in our familiarity, we can overlook things like this. But check this out. Our Messiah, our Savior, when he's pressed against the wall, when he's put between this false dichotomy and he's forced to choose in a way that would bring harm to himself and harm to his mission, what does he say? It says about him, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? You see, you cannot fool God. You can't sneak up on him. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5, what does it say? A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Maybe they're like, hey, we, we read that, and we're going to go get Jesus with that. We're going to flatter him and spread a trap for his feet. Well, let me ask you, Herodian, let me ask you, Pharisee, who do you think wrote that? Who do you think said that that's a thing, that when somebody flatters his neighbor, he's actually spreading a trap to trip you up? Well, God wrote that. God gave that to his people. So what does he do? Jesus, knowing the flattery, knowing the purpose of their hearts, he asks them for a specific coin, a very specific coin. And someone from the group there flips Jesus a Daenerys. And Jesus raises it up before the people. And he says, whose image is found on this coin? Whose inscription? Whose writing's on here? The coin that Jesus asked for and the one that was given to him was likely the one with the head of Caesar Tiberius on it. And it's on that coin that uh, it's actually uh, used at this point in time and it's, it's actually called the tribute penny. And on that coin, the, there's an inscription. It's got the face of Caesar Tiberius, and then it's got this inscription that says this. Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And what that's saying is it's claiming that Caesar Augustus, the father of Caesar Tiberius, was actually promoted to full-on godhood. And that Caesar Tiberius whose inscription is there, who's ruling as Caesar at the present time, is actually the son of a god. This is really interesting. If you want to get me a present, you could, you could actually secure me one of those coins. Um, they're selling them for a reasonable price on eBay. Um, they're actually not that uncommon, um, but they do usually sell for around $1,000. But, you know, sometimes you, on eBay you can get good deals, um, but uh, yeah, you, you can win one of those little bad boys on an auction there on eBay. And if you learn a little Roman history and brush up on your Latin, you'll be able to answer Jesus' question for yourself. Whose picture is this? And what does this inscription say? We don't have to do all that. I mean, this, the answer is simple enough. They just call out to him, Caesar. This is, that's, that's a picture of Caesar. Look at verse 17. Jesus says to them, okay, here's your answer. Here's what you're to do. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render has morphed to mean different things. But in this sense, in this text, what render means is it's this idea of paying back. 
It's this idea of giving what is due. And so Jesus is telling them, he's telling the Herodians, he's telling the Pharisees, he's telling all those that are listening there that morning, he's telling them to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give back to God what is rightfully God's. One commentator said this, Jesus' answer was a clever evasion of the trap. Clever, of course, right? But by giving an ambiguous answer, none of the parties could disagree with it. For the zealot, what belonged to Caesar was nothing, and what belonged to God was everything. But for the moderate, what belonged to Caesar was tribute, and what belonged to God was worship and fidelity to the covenant. It's interesting, too. To use Caesar's coin, to to have it on your person, in your pocket, was actually, I think, to acknowledge Caesar's authority in your life. To enjoy the benefits of his government, the one that he was, was represented there on that coin, was therefore an obligation to pay the tax and the tribute to him as an authority. At any rate, what was due Caesar? Well, I can assure you, not what was inscribed on the face of that coin. The coin said, Tiberius was the son of the god, Augustus. Was Caesar, was Tiberius really a son of God? Well, I can assure you, between Caesar and Jesus, only one of them was divine. Only one of them was the son of God. And yet Jesus indicates that there was a fact, there was a point to this, that they, those in attendance there, that they owed Caesar something. And as only Jesus can, he throws this back at them and basically says, you can sort this out for yourselves, gentlemen. Give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. We're going to spend some more time unpacking that, but really as we just kind of finish up walking through this text at a high-level view, quite briskly, don't miss this last part. These men that had come to Jesus with an insincere flattery walk away with their jaws on the floor. What does it say in that final verse? And they marveled at him. And they marveled at him. What does that mean? To marvel Is it possible that there was this faux marveling? No. This is the only thing sincere about these folks there in this passage. They really were amazed. And so the final thing that we see as we walk through this text is an amazing answer. We've seen the answer, but understanding that the crowd that received it truly saw it as an amazing answer. They marveled. Jesus, with his Solomonic wisdom, he settled the issue as if it were just simple. And of course, to him, our issues that we face on a daily basis are quite simple. You can choose to rebel against Jesus. You can choose to deny him. You can claim that he wasn't God, but you cannot truly explain him away. I remember speaking with a man that, in a sense, I guess you could say, lost his faith. Struggled to believe the Bible at all. Left the church. Sad story indeed. 
was able to give an answer really for all of these peripheral things. But when I pressed him at the end of our conversation, but what will you do with Jesus? He wasn't able to dismiss him. Just as these men weren't either. They'd come face to face with the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And they walked away marveling. What we see happening is another brick is laying here by Mark as he records for us these accounts that further solidify the authority that Jesus has uniquely been given by the Father. That's the general theme of this passage, along with the passages before and after, that Mark is demonstrating for his hearers, us even today, that Jesus is the authority. And that that authority has been given to him by none other than the Father. That's the the general theme. Another win to Jesus. And there'll be more as we continue through. But there's something also that's specifically revealed here in this passage that is brilliant and wildly applicable to us today. Even deeper than this idea of Jesus' authority. And it's found in this phrase, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. The operative word here this morning is, and that phrase at any rate, is render. Render. We've talked about it a minute ago. It's to to offer to another what is due them. That's fitting for the Christian faith this morning because in one sense the Christian faith is a faith that's based on fairness that's based on justice it's a faith that preaches giving to one another what is fair giving to one another what is due them in business we are called to be fair in lending we are uh, we are charged to, to 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 be to charge others in business a reasonable interest rate while on the other hand we are commanded to pay our debts on time why because that's just right that's just fair and it's just just and so it's fitting that Jesus would say this very thing render to caesar give to caesar what is due caesar but give to god what is due god and so really as we close this morning and don't get too excited because we still got a little bit more left here but i've got two questions that i want to ask that really you're probably already asking this morning that first question is this what do you owe caesar what do you owe caesar i admit that of the two questions i'm sure that you can imagine the other of the two questions this is the least important and yet at the same time jesus didn't just say to them Render to God that which is God's. But in contrast, as a complement to that final piece, he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar. And so what do you owe Caesar? Well, from this passage, we see this, that we owe a tax. That we owe a tax. Now, in in their context, it was a tax. In our context, it may be a little bit different. But at any rate, Jesus doesn't give the people of his day or even us for that matter, an option to not pay the tax. As a matter of fact, Jesus even paid the tax. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, Jesus tells Peter, which by the way, Caden, I thought of you, and any other fisherman here, you'll enjoy this. Jesus commands his disciple to go fishing, 
right? Not fishing with a net, but he actually says, hey, throw out a hook, and the first fish that you catch, pull it up out of the water, whether it's a bluegill, a sunny, whatever it is. He says, pull that thing out, reach down in its mouth, and there's going to be a, what you need to pay the tax. It's going to be in there. And so the money doesn't come out of Jesus' pocket, but it does come out of his fish, right? Jesus commands his disciples to pay the tax. And the thought goes like this. Do, do you ride on Caesar's roads? Do, do you enjoy his protection that he offers you? Do you carry his coins that have his face? Do you carry them in your pocket? Yes? Okay, then pay the tax. Pay the tribute. What, how does that apply to us today? I don't intend to spend much time there in that section, but I think quite literally, Christians, we are to pay our tax. As it comes to financially, we are required to do these things. We are required to contribute to the society around us. Not just in the church should we work and contribute, but also in society we should do the same. should never be said of the church that we're freeloaders. As we'll see in just a moment, that the church and the way that we interact with government, the way that we interact with those in authority over us, speaks to our faith and works as a testimony, either for in favor of Christ and his kingdom or against. And so first, tax. We owe Caesar a tax. But we also see that we owe Caesar submission. And maybe not just in this passage. It'd be difficult for me to really extrapolate that to, 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 to really demonstrate this idea of submission. But Titus 3.1 does the heavy lifting for me. There Paul tells Titus, leader of the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul tells Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. thought about this when when speaking of the roman law to carry a a soldier's backpack one mile when asked what does jesus say jesus doesn't rebel against that imposing unfair unethical racist comment he doesn't he doesn't argue against it what does he tell his disciples to do hey i tell you what guys it's unfair what they're asking you to do don't speak ill of them as a matter of fact when they ask you to carry it one mile i want you to take it the extra mile. Some of you kids are like, wow, that's where that comes from? That's where it comes from. Jesus said, take it the extra mile. Go the extra mile. He doesn't say, hey, rebel against it. Fight them tooth and nail. It's not right. It's unfair. No, go the extra mile. While there's a place for American revolution, I'm afraid that we need more Christian submission For some Christians, the attitude that we have is to find tyrants, seek them out, call them tyrants, whoever we can, and defy them instead as a a general rule, as an MO to rule, or as a general rule to obey, sorry, to submit to them as much as is biblically possible. Insofar as our authorities do not ask us to disobey God, we are, it is incumbent upon us to obey. Jesus clearly teaches this. And so does the rest of the New Testament. So be careful not to discount the laws of this land even. 
quickly becomes the wild, wild west, and we start disregarding laws that we personally don't agree with. We use gray area to discount them and set them to the side. That's not what Jesus is envisioning for his followers. And bear in mind that every single time that we find a New Testament command to obey or to honor all authorities, it is a time during persecution, some of it more intense than others. There's always oppression against God's people. Have you heard of Herod? Do you know anything about him? Have you heard of Nero? These men ruled as these commands were written. And you say, but Paul never meant that the tyrant president so-and-so. But Jesus wasn't thinking about the mayor of this particular town in this year. Again, have you heard of Herod? Have you heard of Nero? And I alluded to this a moment ago, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 speaks directly to this point. It says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I, I, I recognize that this is a unclear, this is a, kind of like a gray area, right? Because there's some times where it's like, wow, Christians are, people talk about, uh, foolishly talk about Christians in a way that's like, man, uh, that's just, it's difficult to, to, to cipher. But I would argue that sometimes Christians act in a way that is rebellious and not honoring to God in a, in a time that they do not need to be rebellious. And Paul is saying, or I'm sorry, First Peter is saying here very clearly to us, this is the will of God that by doing good, by submitting to authority as much as is possible, that you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, and that we won't pick fights where we don't need to. And so what do we owe Caesar? Well, generally speaking, we owe tax. Generally speaking, we, we owe a submission, an attitude of submission. And while this list is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, we also, and finally, as it relates to what we owe Caesar, we owe him prayer. Now, not prayer directed toward Caesar, but prayer on behalf of Caesar directed toward God. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he goes on to list particularly for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. I don't intend to add much more to that. I think it's enough. Church, let's continue to pray. Let's pray for kings. Let's pray for presidents and governors and mayors and leaders within our nation, both nationally and locally, for those who are in high positions positions. Three things that I think we owe Caesar, so to speak. But then you ask the question, well, what is Jesus really driving at here? Is this really about what we owe Caesar or is this something else? Well, I would say ultimately it's something else. This final answer, this final question rather, what do you owe God? What do you owe God? We, we see that because this coin bears the image of Caesar, that it, in a sense, belongs to Caesar. And let me ask you then, this morning, what 
bears the image of God. Or maybe I should say, who bears the image of God? Is it a coin? Or is it a people? It's a people. Mankind this morning, those gathered here that can understand and hear me this morning, they, and, and those who can't, by the way, they bear the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created he them. And so every man, every woman, regardless of age, they bear the image of their maker. Furthermore, the Bible says very clearly, particularly in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that the law of God is inscribed on our hearts. Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. And whose inscription is on this coin? Also Caesar's. Look around the room. Whose image is on the people gathered around us this morning? God's. And whose inscription? This sense of right and wrong, enough that would bring us to a sufficient understanding that we are condemned before God. Who wrote that? Whose inscription is it? It's God himself that inscribed it. And so if the Roman Daenerys belongs to Caesar because it's made in his image and has his inscription, how much more do we belong to God? How much more do we owe God? With that in mind, you, you ask the question, what do we owe God? Well, first and foremost, as our creator, we owe him our obedience. Made in his image, fashioned according to his will, we must be in subjection to his will in every area of our lives. If I just were to let that kind of rest on your shoulders this morning, it might get heavy awfully quick. And a third question might be asked, not what do we owe Caesar and not what do we owe God, but what does God owe us? If he requires of us obedience, maybe there's this third question. What does God owe you? Initially, you might be quick to say, God owes us nothing. And in a sense, that's true, but it's also lacking. Because God does owe each and every one of us something. He owes us his judgment. And because each and every one of us are sinners, he owes us his wrath. And he owes us death. Romans chapter 3 says then this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are under sin. They've both sinned. If those are the only two categories, Jew and Greek, they're both sinners. As it is written, none is righteous. Even if you're a Pharisee, even if you're a moderate, even if you're a Herodian, none is righteous. No, not one. Not even one. And what does God owe each and every one of us? Well, further on in that same book, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you know this by heart. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting, that word wages. It's not the same word as reckon. It's not the same word as give, but both of them are used in when dealing with money. Both of them are used when dealing with what's being earned. 
Wages are something that you earn. Reckoning is something that you are due to give. So what should God reckon towards us? What should God give to us that is our due? Death. Separation from Him for all of eternity. And yet verse 23 speaks to this predicament that we find ourselves in. We've all been required to give God our obedience, and yet we haven't. Because of that, God's wrath is upon us. And yet verse 23 of that same chapter continues. For all have sinned, I'm sorry, of chapter 6. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus steps into our disobedience When God owed us his wrath, Jesus steps in. And for those who turn from their sin and place their faith in him, he gives them grace. Their sin is laid on him. His righteousness is laid on them. Where there has not been obedience, the Father offers grace through Jesus Christ. There's not a one of us here this morning that don't have the wrath of God against us except for those who have turned from their sin and trusted the sacrifice of Jesus and that opportunity is made available to you this morning regardless of your age if you by God's grace and his Holy Spirit speaking to you even now reveals to you your sin and the wages that you deserve as a result of your sin would you call out to Jesus for forgiveness Would you turn from your sin, trusting that Jesus will save you? Obedience. God deserves our obedience. He is our creator. And I want to speak briefly to those of you who are Christians here this morning. There's another thing that we owe him. And that thing in particular is your life. So you owe God your obedience. All mankind does. But particularly for Christians, we owe him our lives. Why? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Other translations use the word reasonable in place of spiritual there in verse 1 at the end. The Greek word is akin to logical. That's actually the root. And so it could be translated, which is your logical worship? Which is your, other translations say, your reasonable worship? worship your reasonable act of service why would that be reasonable again it's akin to reckon or i'm sorry render it's akin to render to to give what is due this just makes sense christian your life 
has been bought by Christ. Your life has been bought by Christ. And would you not give every aspect of your life to Christ? Even this morning, would you commit yourself to that? What should you render to God? What is reasonable? Every bit of your life, every second of your day, every dollar in your account should be rendered to God because that is what is due Him. And so if you leave this morning wondering, what am I to take away from this passage? I don't know about this tax thing. I don't know about this Latin quorum Deo. Listen, this is what you should take home. Render to God what is due God. And Christian, that is your life. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God. To enjoy Him forever. Render to God what is due Him. After Zacchaeus met Jesus, he was a changed man. He placed his whole life under the authority of Jesus. And at that point, things in his possession that actually belonged to others had to be returned. Jesus didn't tell him to do this. At least we don't see that. But as the Holy Spirit of God began to work in his heart, he saw that thing on my shelf does not belong to me. It belongs to somebody else. It's due somebody else. And so what does he do? He goes and he gives it away. Jesus changed his life. Perhaps this morning as you hear the words of God preach, you think like Zacchaeus. Wow. There are things in my life that I've been keeping back that are not mine. Maybe it's in regard to Caesar. Maybe it's in regard to some other neighbor. By neighbor, family member physical neighbor, co-worker. Or maybe there's something that you're holding back from God even this morning. And as you sit with Jesus there in your house, maybe the Spirit of God is pointing to something that you need to give away, that you need to render towards somebody else because it's due. I want to invite you into a time of reflection and silence and so... If you'd be so willing, I'd encourage you to bow your head and close your eyes. And to really ask the Spirit of God this morning to speak to you. Perhaps the fact that you're here this morning is indicative that Jesus is calling to you, saying, hey, I want to commune with you. I want to be in your house. And so imagine that that's where you're at. You're there sharing a meal with Jesus, and as you are, the Spirit of God is beginning to work in your life, and He's pointing out in your heart, hey, these are things that you're holding back that are due someone else. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's time, maybe it's some area of your life that you've even perhaps laid on the altar and then you've drawn back off. Maybe it's areas of your life that you've not been fair in your dealings. Or perhaps just generally, it's as it relates to God, you're holding back. I want to invite you to do business with God this morning. Take a few moments, reflect.
Father, in areas of our lives where we've held back from you, we repent of that. Father, we as your people, purchased by the blood of your Son, have nothing to hold back and everything that we have is yours. Whether it be our families, our relationships, our checkbooks, our time, our calendars, Father, even this church, would we not hold back from you? We would give all of this back to you because it is only yours. It's not ours. From our children to our cash to our calendars, would you take them? Would you glorify yourself through them as we, your church, lay our lives down as a living sacrifice? This is our prayer. We pray that you'd be glorified through this. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Church, I want to invite you to stand this morning. And as you do, consider this. There's one final thing that Jesus requires of us, that God requires of us, that is due him, that we should render to him and not hold back. And that is praise. We're going to praise God this morning. Listen to the words of this song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What blessings have, has God extended to you? Think about that. And as you do, praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you, heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Listen to this next verse. Praise God for all that he has done. Praise him for he has overcome. The grave is beaten. Love has won. Praise God, our Savior, Christ son. Hagerstown Church, would you praise God with me this morning?